chapter 19. Uh, and I have asked Miss Macy Beatty if she would read this morning. And so if you would please stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement um, chapter 19 is, and especially verse 9. Uh, and so today I pray that we would leave here encouraged, that we would leave here um, uplifted, and, and that, that our eyes would, would leave here not focused on ourselves, but focused on Jesus and everything that he's done for us. Uh, thank you for each and every person here. Thank you for this church, and thank you for what they mean to us. Um, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, the last several weeks have just been brutal. Um, hard to study for, hard to preach. I know you've had a hard time listening to it. I get it. Uh, I think Cameron texted Candy from uh, Carolina just to say, man, Byron seemed a little uptight last week while we were watching the service. And, and Candy had to go, well, that was a very hard text to preach, okay? And, and it was. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, and, and listen, the reason we preach the way we do is because we can't skip stuff. It forces us to preach the text that's in front of us. So whether it's fluffy and nice and makes you feel good, or if it's wrath and judgment, it's in front of us, and that's exactly what we have to preach, and we can't skip it. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, I'm thankful for hard text of Scripture. Um, hard words make soft people. Uh, that's how we grow. That's how we learn is that sometimes we have to hear things that are hard, that are difficult, and that is the way that God uses to soften our hearts sometimes. And so I'm glad that we can preach those things. And what John's trying to do in the last several weeks is that he's just trying to wake you and I up to the reality that Jesus is coming soon, that, that we have to decide, are we going to follow the lamb or the dragon? Are we going to be a, side, a part of, of Babylon, the prostitute, that city, or are we going to be a part of the bride, the new Jerusalem, that city? And he speaks as harshly as he does because we have to understand that the world and all of its systems, all the things that we're tempted to look at and put our hope in, all those things are destined for destruction and all those things will pass away and a new world will come and it's only those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ who will be able to enter into the new Jerusalem. And so at the first of the week, man, I was, I was fired up. I was geared up. We were going to go through Revelation 18. And I was like, this is going to be good. We're, we're going to make our way through it. We're going to get it done. And Monday night, I was sitting on my couch thinking about it. And I texted Jay. We were working on music. And I said, dude, I can't, I can't do this. Like, like, I, like, I can't do it. Like, I just can't go another week of just straight hellfire and, and brimstone. And, and it's not that I'm scared to do so. You know that I'm not. And I'm the idiot that said, hey, Revelation, great idea. Let's do it. But I need to be encouraged this week, and so do you, okay? We do. 
We need to be reminded that although the world's coming to an end, a better world is coming. That there's this feast that you and I get to participate in. That Jesus is right now currently preparing something better for us as we sit here and that he is going to come and get us soon. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through chapter 18, but we're going to hit it very, very quickly. Uh, All it is is it's a continuation of chapter 17. Remember last week, he was showing us that we have two cities. You have Babylon and you have the new Jerusalem. Babylon is falling. She's beautiful. She's a prostitute, right? She's alluring. She's trying to get you to put your trust in something other than Jesus. She's trying to get us to, to look at the systems of the world. That's where she wants our eyes at. But that thing's coming to an end. And so through judgment, and especially in chapter 18, John is going to show us how quickly these worldly systems that we tend to look at fall, how quickly nations fall. If you look at chapter 18, you can look through there, and it says three times in verses 10, 17, and 19, it says in a single hour. Now, that's not a a literal uh, length of time. It's just indicating how quickly nations fall. So so look with me, if you will. Let's look at 18. We're just going to look at the first five verses. John says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So once again, what what you see in those five verses is just the perversity of Babylon. God's saying, because she's chosen to build a society without me, she will be judged. That her reign will come to an end. And the chapter goes on to describe the excess that Babylon exudes. So remember, at the time of the writing, Rome was Babylon. And it, and it, and it dabbled, I didn't dabble in it, just was covered up in excess. They had everything. You think about our country right now, we have excess, do we not? I mean, it's everywhere. Get on Amazon, you can get whatever you want. It's just excess, excess. We're just all over the place. Uh, I took Lincoln Friday with me to Amarillo and he wanted a new monster truck. And so we went to Target. And if you go down the toy aisles right now, they're just, they're gone. There's nothing there. It's just empty. And so we go down the aisle, there's like one monster truck left, right? And he was like, well, daddy, I guess we bought all the monster trucks. You know, and I'm, I'm looking at it and it caught myself because I was like, this is ridiculous. And I was getting mad, you know, a little bit. But then it dawned on me. I was like, does he really need another monster truck? I mean, the kid's got like 45 of them. You know, I just excess. I mean, it's great and it's nice that we're able to buy our kids those things, but it's just excess. Okay. And then when I told him that Brandon took the monster trucks, that wasn't a good idea. Because when we got to the checkout line, he looked at the lady and goes, Brandon took my monster truck. And I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. All right, let's get out of here. We got to leave. Yeah. But the chapter goes on to talk about um, cargo ships. And this is so interesting to me that these cargo ships that carry expensive wares and people are weeping and mourning because they can't get to the expensive wares or they can't buy the expensive wares. And I don't know if this is referring to our modern world or not. It very well could be. You got container ships sitting off the coast where we can't get to them for one reason or another, and they're just sitting there. 
And you're looking at chapter 18 going, okay, Lord, I, I get it, all right. And so he's told that, listen, all this is going to come to an end, that God is going to judge Babylon, and within an hour, Babylon is going to fall. This refers again to the brevity of her existence. So throughout nations, throughout history, when nations fall, it happens very, very quickly. Okay, I'm going to read you a quote, and it's, it's a rather lengthy quote. So I'm heading, I'm just giving you a warning. But I, I think you're going to get the point of what John's trying to say. So in Niall Ferguson's book, Civilization, he says that empires collapse suddenly. And he says, yes, they go through a gradual decline, but there comes a time with, when without notice, they collapse suddenly. Western civilization in, in its first incarnation, the Roman Empire, did not decline and fall sedately. It collapsed within a generation, tipped over the edge of chaos by barbarian invaders in the 5th century. Now remember, when, when Rome eventually does go, it goes in a week. It goes quickly. It happened very fast. In 5030, uh, Incas were the masters of all they surveyed from their lofty Andean cities. Within less than a decade, foreign invaders with horses, gunpowder, and lethal diseases had smashed their empire to smithereens. The Ming Dynasty's rule in China also fell apart with extraordinary speed in the mid-17th century. At the time of the Young Turk movement, which came to power in 1908, the Ottoman Empire still seemed capable, capable of being reformed. By 1922, when the last sultan departed Istanbul aboard a British warship, it was gone. Japan's empire reached its maximum territorial extent in 1942. After Pearl Harbor, uh, after Pearl Harbor. By 1945, it too was no more. The sun set on the British Empire with comparable suddenness. In 1945, Prime Minister Winston Churchill bestrode the world stage as one of the big three, deciding the fates of nations with U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin at Yalata. No sooner had the war ended than he was swept from office. Within a dozen years, the United Kingdom had conceded independence to Burma, Egypt, Ghana, India, Israel, Jordan, Malaysia, Pakistan, Ceylon, and Sudan. The most recent and familiar example of precipitous decline is, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. With the benefit of hindsight, historians have traced all kinds of rot within the Soviet system back to the Brezhnev era and beyond. According to one recent account, it was only the high oil prices of the 1970s that averted Armageddon. But this was not apparent at the time. In March 1985, when Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, the CIA wrongly estimated the Soviet economy to be about 60% the size of the U.S. economy. The Soviet nuclear arsenal was genuinely larger than the U.S. stockpile. And governments in what was then called the Third World, from Vietnam to Nicaragua, had been tilting in the Soviets' favor for most of the previous 20 years. Yet less than five years after Gorbachev took power, the Soviet Imperium in Central and Eastern Europe had fallen apart, followed in 1991 by the Soviet Union. If an, empire, if an empire fell off a cliff rather than gently declining, it was the one founded by Lenin. All right, do you get the point? That happens quickly. When a nation goes, it goes. And that's what John's trying to get us to understand is that with one hour, Babylon, in whatever form she takes, she will go. And so his point is this, don't hitch your wagons to the world. Don't put your hope in this country, in this nation, in this world, because eventually it's going to go. The system you're trusting in will collapse, and when it collapses, it will collapse quickly. And so what John wants you and I to know and understand is that we need to put our hope in something better, that there's a better world coming, there's a better feast coming that we're invited to. And so that brings us to chapter 19. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. 
So it's what John sees next, not what happens next. And so after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgment, judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her, blood, the, on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke goes from her up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the thorn, throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what we do is we go back to the throne room. And this scene that we're seeing is just a recapitulation of the other scenes that we've seen in heaven. Remember back in chapters four and five, you have the same thing. We're in the throne room. You see the tsunami of praise that starts in chapters four and five with the living creatures, goes to the elders, and then extends out to the vast multitude, which would be us, as we begin to sing praises to God for all that he's done. In verses one through five, we have the same scene, except the tsunami just sweeps back the other way. So it starts with us, the people of God. In verses one through three, we begin to sing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to God. See how God-centered it is. God did it all. God's the one who put the plan in motion. God's the one who saved us. God's the one who kept us. He's the one who's brought us here. We're going to worship him. The word hallelujah, it means praise Yahweh. That's the holy name of God or the special name of God, Yahweh. And listen to this. It is found nowhere in the New Testament except right here in Revelation chapter 19. And it's used four times. Verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. That's pretty cool. That right here in chapter 19, we see praise God. And it's us. It's the people of God who are praising it back to him. And we're praising him for saving his people and defeating his enemies. Then it goes to the 24 elders and the four living creatures all fall down and they begin to worship and they say, amen, praise God. And then check out verse five. In verse five, a voice comes from the throne and begins to worship God. Well, who's that verse, the voice worshiping God? Jesus. Jesus himself is caught up in worshiping the living God and he says, praise God, all his servants, great and small. So, so those of us who are powerful and important, those of us who are weak and unnoticed, what he's saying is that worship is required of all of us, regardless of our earthly status, our socioeconomic status, our achievement, our reputation, that all creation worships God for what he's done. See, the whole scene is this worship uh, of, of how God has saved a people, how he's kept a people, and how he has defeated evil. It's this beautiful scene that, that one day you and I, who've trusted in Jesus, we will participate in. But then the scene moves to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to just focus on verse 9. Let's read it again together. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these 
are the true words of God. The book of Revelation contains seven Beatitudes, which is kind of fitting and surprising. Right? We got seven lampstands, seven candlesticks, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. This is the fourth Beatitude in the book of Revelation. If you remember, Beatitude is just a blessing pronounced on a person. So here he's saying, blessed is those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, this is a wedding invitation that's going out. This is God the Father saying, hey, Christ Jesus, the crucified, risen Lord, is getting married. And did you get your invitation? Daryl Johnson puts it this way. He said, if you were to get this invitation, it would read like this. The Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, the giver of life, out of his sevenfold fullness, invites you to the marriage supper of the Father's Son, the Lamb of God, who has won the victory over sin and evil and death, who takes away the sin of the world. RSV ASAP. So who's the bride? Who, who is Jesus getting married to? Well, in Revelation 21-2, we read this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21-9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So the new city is the new creation. The new creation is the new city. God loves the new creation, the new city, and he chooses to speak of that love in terms of the relationship between a husband and a wife. So in other words, the lamb is marrying the new creation. And you and I have been invited to the wedding as a guest who will witness the exchange of vows. But also, you've been invited as the bride. See, it turns out that, that the bride is also those who live in the new city who are part of the new creation. In Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 14, 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders and no one can learn that song except the 144,000, that's us, all believers redeemed throughout all of humanity who had been redeemed from the earth. See, he's bought a wife and he's paid the price with his life. So you and I, we, the church of Jesus Christ, we are his bride and we have been invited to the wedding as his bride. Now think about that for a second. How's that for self-esteem in this room? You want better self-esteem? You can't get better than that right there. That Jesus has chose you as his bride. That we're called the bride of Christ. And it's the dominant metaphor that Revelation is going to use to describe the people that belong to Christ. But check this out. It's not just in Revelation. You realize that the dominant metaphor to describe us is the bride of Christ. And it's throughout the whole Bible. Through the entirety of the whole thing. So buckle up. we got a lot of scripture. Isaiah 54, 4 through 6. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Isaiah 61.10 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In Jeremiah, God laments the fact that his bride has lost interest. Jeremiah 2.2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your, your youth and your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses eight through 16, we read this. This is God speaking. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So he's saying, I loved you. I brought you into my home. You're my bride. And then verse 15 and 16, he mourns the fact that his brides cheated on him. But you trusted in your beauty. You played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor shall ever be. You go to the book of Hosea. What's the whole thing about? It's about God's love for his bride and he keeps loving her even though she keeps leaving him over and over and over again. But then guess what? You come to the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. John the Baptist talking about himself says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In Mark chapter 2, verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding feast fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Two of Jesus' parables in Matthew chapter 22 and 25, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to what? A wedding. Matthew 22 is about a man who's giving a feast for his son and the invitation goes out, right? They're invited and who, what happens? People ignore it. No, nobody shows up. And so the man says, hey, go to the highways and the byways and invite everybody, the rich, the poor, the great, the small, like we just read about in Revelation, bring them to the wedding feast for my son. In Matthew 25, it refers to the second coming of Jesus and he talks about the foolish attendants the maidens who didn't keep their lamps full of oil so that when the bride or when the groom showed up, they could light them and run out to meet him and rejoice. Jesus' first miracle was at a what? A wedding. How about in John chapter four? Jesus goes to the well and he meets the Samaritan woman. Never thought about this to this week. Jesus meets a woman at the well. That ought to ring bells in our head back to the Old Testament. Every time somebody meets somebody at a well, what happens? They get married. Moses meets Zephora at a well. Isaac's servant meets Rebecca at a well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. So when Jesus sits down with this woman at the well and he's like, hey, go call your husband. And she's like, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't got a husband. 
And Jesus tells her, well, yeah, I know. You've been with like five guys and you're exchanging that for money. In other words, what Jesus was getting at it though too is this. You do now. You're looking at him. And the woman puts her faith and trust in Jesus. And remember, she goes back to the village and she brings the village with her. Jesus is saying that, hey, I'm your husband now. I'm the groom, you're the bride. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 through 27, Paul says, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 2 Corinthians eleven two. for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. See, Jesus is the husband of the people of God. And so this should be, for us, game-changing news. It should be a message that just blows our mind to go, wait a minute, like, like we are the, the, the bride of Christ? All right, and I, and I get it, you're looking at me, okay, like, I don't get it, all right? Especially you guys, you're like, I ain't getting married, right? Let me explain something to you. Let, let's just look at the, 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 the ancient wedding customs of the first century Judaism. So, so in first century Judaism, there were three steps in getting married. First was engagement or, or betrothal is what they would call it. So we're going to use that word, betrothal. There was the getting ready for the wedding. And then there was the wedding supper itself. So it began with the betrothal ceremony. So the groom would find a prospective young lady and he would then take his best man, leave his father's house, travel to her house, and then he would go to the father. And once he was there, they would begin negotiations. And the big thing was, is that they had to finalize uh, the wedding price or the purchase price for the bride. So, so the man would go in and be like, hey man, I, I give you like three goats and a bull for her uh, or, or a rope ladder, uh, I mean, whatever it is. We're going to exchange something, and I'm going to pay the price for your daughter. So on that day, once they exchanged the price, once they figured out what it was going to be, the groom and, and the father would then uh, 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 agree. They would shake hands, and then the woman would be brought into the room, and the marriage technically at that point went into effect. And so although they didn't live together yet, she at that point, now hear the language, was declared consecrated or set apart for that man. And so she would come in, a cup of wine would be poured, and then a blessing would be announced over that wine, and it went something like this. This cup is the new covenant. And then the man would look at the, 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 the new bride, and he would say, hey, I'll be back to get you in one year. I'm going to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so he would leave, he would go home, and he would spend the better part of a year building this room onto his father's house for his bride. Now listen, so binding was this betrothal that if the man died, that woman is now considered a widow. If she or he were to break the betrothal, that was considered the same as divorce. So at the end of the betrothal, the man and his best man would then make their way back to the bride's house. And although the bride had some idea of about when he would show up, she didn't really know the exact date, you know? And so the groom, in order to be kind of sneaky and, 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 and fun, would often show up at midnight. And when he would show up at midnight, they would have their lamps ready, hopefully. They would light their lamps, they would run out, and in Matthew 25, 6, they said, at midnight there was a cry, and this is what they would say. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then there would be a brief ceremony 
That ceremony would involve the word take. You wonder where we get the idea of taking a bride? It comes from first century Judaism. The man would show up. There would be a brief ceremony. He would then take his bride. They would go back to the groom's father's house and the wedding guests would be there gathered in their finest robes and the feast would start and it would last anywhere from seven to 14 days. So check this out. In Mark chapter 14, We have Jesus Christ, he's in the upper room, he's with his disciples, and he says these words in Mark 14, 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After the Lord's Supper, in John chapter 14, verses one through three, they're still in the upper room. They've already made the new covenant. Look what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Y'all see what Jesus is telling us right there? He's saying he's the bridegroom. He's the husband of the people of God that we are his bride. And listen, he's paid the purchase price with his blood. He sealed the engagement with a cup of wine and he is currently preparing a place for us in the Father's house. And one day, when we least expect it, he will return to take us to be with him forever. Daryl Johnson tells us this. He says, Revelation is a love letter. It's a love letter to you and I. And I never thought about this before, but, but he talked about how uh, sometimes when we, we hear songs, and, and I'm the world's worst at knocking certain Christian songs, right? Because they sound like prom songs that we write to Jesus. And one of the things that we said was this, and I never thought about it. He said, there's a reason we write those songs though. It's because sometimes it's appropriate to sing those kind of songs to Jesus because he is our groom. We, we are his bride. Here in a moment, we're gonna sing a song and there's a line in it that says, lover of my soul, I want to thank you. And one of the things Johnson says is that it's not appropriate to always sing those songs in public worship, and I would agree, but he said private worship when you're in your car and you're just driving down the road and you just want to sing like that to Jesus, that's completely and totally appropriate, is it not? So he says, Revelation's a love letter. It's telling us not to be seduced by Babylon, the harlot who's fueled by the dragon. We're not only pressured to compromise, we're being seduced by a false lover who can never satisfy the longings of the human heart. So that's why verse nine says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Blessed are you if you've gotten your invitation. So what does it mean to live in light of this truth? Let me give you a few things. First, it means dignity. To become the bride of the lamb bestows amazing dignity on us as human beings. I mean, to be a disciple of the lamb, that's awesome. To be his friend, that's amazing. To be a son or daughter is mind-blowing. But to be his bride, wow. Unbelievable that he would choose us. The second thing is delight. If it gives us dignity, the second one's delight. Knowing that we are his bride makes us realize that he takes delight in you. He likes you. So with all your warts and all your idiosyncrasies, and some of you got a lot of them, 
He loves you. He delights in you. He takes great joy in loving you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So it means dignity. It means delight. But the third thing is this. It means security. It means that God has claimed us for himself, that he's bought us for himself, that he sealed the covenant with wine and come hell or high water, he's sticking with his wife. So for better or worse, for richer or poor, for sickness or in health, he is going to stick by you that he's gone to infinite lengths to take hold of us. He's dived into the abyss of our sin for himself and he will never let you go. He'll never give up on you. He'll never walk away from you. The fourth thing that we get is readiness, right? Look at verses seven and eight. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. When you read verses seven and eight, you see the tension that you find throughout the Bible. So on one hand, the bride has made herself ready. On the other hand, she was given clothes. So which is it? Did she get ready or did she give it, was she given clothes? It's both. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there it is. You work out your salvation, but then check the next part. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good. So we do the work, he does the work. It's both. He calls us to himself, and then he begins the process of freeing us from Babylon. You remember how the bride would be set apart and consecrated? That's exactly what's happening to us now. He's freeing us from Babylon. He's beginning to, uh, to empower us to live a new life. It's his presence that enables us to do good deeds, not to earn his love, but because he's already given us his love. So if you're in Christ, listen, there's a readiness that comes with that, and he's getting you ready for himself. Now, it's a slower process for some of us than it is others, right? Some of you take forever to get ready. Right? You do. It's funny. It's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. I do too. It takes a while. We got to look nice. But he's preparing us. And since he's preparing us, we want to be ready for him. We don't want to be found in the arms of the harlot if he shows up at midnight. And we want to be dressed. We want to have our lamps ready to go when he returns. So listen, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, you're renewing your wedding vows. We're remembering what he's done to purchase us and to prepare a place for us. So today, listen to me. Some of you have heard the invitation today for the first time. You're invited to the marriage, the marriage, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You're invited. And so today is the day for you to say yes to Jesus. You're not here by accident. So the invitation has gone out. Will you accept the invitation? Some of us in this room, we've known for a long time that we're invited, but we just kind of keep putting the invitation off, going, ah, I'll get to it later, I'll get to it later. No, today's the day to say, okay, I accept the invitation and I'm going to stop stalling. Some of us, like me, we've let the invitation get lost in the pile of stuff that sits on your kitchen table. Any of y'all got that? It's got graduations announcements from 2019 on there, Christmas cards from 2017 on there, and, and somewhere in there is, is the, the, the invitation. 
Today's the day that you need to take it out of the pile and say, forgive my neglect, Lord. I want to come to the feast. And then listen, some of us, some of us, the invitation's buried under layers of guilt and shame. You know yourself, you know your life, and you go, man, I don't feel worthy to be invited. And you think like I do oftentimes, man, if he really knew me, if he really knew who I was, he would just cancel the invitation outright. He'd just give me a text, go, hey, man, don't come. Can you remember that he knows you better than you know yourself? Everybody look at me. He doesn't have buyer's remorse. He knew exactly what he purchased. And look at me, he doesn't regret it. Not for one second does he regret it. He shed his blood to cover your guilt and shame. And he's saying to you today, I bought you with my blood. You are mine and I am yours and I'm not going anywhere. So today, what we need to do is get our eyes off of ourselves. Get our eyes off all this junk that's in the world. I know some of us are beat down. We're tired. There's all kinds of things going. I don't want to go to Denver for a week. I'm tired too. But I need to remember that there's a better world coming, that there's a better feast coming, and that one day we are going to come to the table of the king and we're going to be with Jesus forever. And it ain't going to have nothing to do with us or how awesome or amazing we are. It's going to have everything to do with our groom, Jesus Christ, who did what we could not do, who died for us, who rose again, who has secured us, and he loves us. So listen to me. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to have our ushers come down, our deacons come down, and we're just going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to renew our wedding vows, as we just said. And we're going to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us so that we can come to his table. So a few things as these guys come down. First off, I want to remind you that um, if you're not a member, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come to the table with us this morning. But if you're not a Christian, we just ask that you set this out. We're not trying to be rude. We're not trying to hurt your feelings. But the Bible's very clear that this is for the family. So today, maybe as the gospel was preached, you heard the invitation go out and you accepted it today. And so maybe right there where you're at for the first time, you can come to the table today knowing that, hey, when I came in here, I was outside, but I've been brought in. That would be an awesome thing to celebrate today. For the rest of us believers, the Bible's also clear that we don't come and take this cup in an unholy manner. So in the next few minutes, as the music plays and as they're passing out uh, the elements, would you just take some time right there where you're at? Just check your heart, search your heart, Make sure there's not some areas that we need to just ask for forgiveness and repent of. Maybe it's just, as I said, some of us just need to remember that, hey, all this guilt and all this shame, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. And we just need to relish the fact that he loves us, that he doesn't regret what he bought, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you so much for this wonderful truth that because of what Jesus has done for us, that, that we've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you that one day, we're going to be at that table, and it's going to be a wonderful celebration. I thank you that come hell or high water, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, for sickness or health, Jesus will not leave his bride. Please let us hold on to that truth today. Some of us just need to know that, that he's not upset at us. He's not disappointed in us. He doesn't regret what he purchased, that he loves us, and that his grace is enough for us. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.